Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Reddit, Instagram, and MeWe. And of course, be sure to visit mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. Margaret. An invisible man plagues the town of Iping. What rot? Clearly the folk of Iping have lost the ability to hear the words coming out of their own mouths. It ain't your ears that be deceiving you. Marvel. This is a manhunt. Have you experienced any suspicious occurrences? Strange noises? Adelaide. Broken window. No. No. Nothing like that. I can do many things while invisible out life. Things that ordinary men cannot. She's in league with him. Ask her. He's written all over her lying face. What part did you play in this? He's crazy and he's dangerous. It's time you chose a side. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 536. Out now on DVD and on demand is Fear of the Invisible Man, a sci-fi horror thriller set in 19th century London The stars Mahari Calvi as a young widow who shelters an old friend from medical school who through his experiments has turned himself invisible, a condition that corrupts his mind and soul as the invisible man spreads mayhem across London. A reimagining of the H.G. Wells novel Fear the Invisible Man proves to be an impressively made low-budget horror thriller that also marks the latest film from director Paul Dudbridge from the say joins me now on the podcast. Paul, how are you today? Very well. Thank you for having me, Matt. Absolutely. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on. And it's really interesting, after watching this film, you know, when people hear The Invisible Man, you yourself as a, a filmmaker, as a film historian, as as a, as a as so many other things as well in the film industry, you know that The Invisible Man as a character, as a film property, is very well known. It's kind of like one of those characters like Dracula, like Frankenstein, like people just know the name and they conjure up the images, right? So when you have a movie like your one in Fear the Invisible Man, you need to find that balance right between delivering something new while also kind of catering to what fans kind of also expect from a franchise like that. Um, when it came to putting this movie together, you was the, the prime 
uh, filmmaker, director, what were the keys for you to try to make sure you got that balance right in, in making sure that you give the fans what they want, but also giving them also something new as well to the proceedings? Well, I think that's the real trick, isn't it? Is that is like anything, even if you were to make a sequel, it's about giving something new plus what they're expecting. And I think if you differ too far off the pendulum swings too far in either direction they're not happy because it's either not what they're expecting at all or it's exactly what they were getting they get nothing new mm. so um yeah so in in that vein there then it's it's almost like you're just having to i think first of all it was having that foundation of what are we expecting what do i want to see um and you know and we did the usual things of like the footsteps in the snow and 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 you know objects floating and things like that and but then it was just what can we add to that or how can we twist it or how can we, you know, um, make the audience kind of, um, you know, ha- experience something new, hopefully, that they haven't seen before and or, or add those things that they're expecting, like floating objects. How can we make that an interesting scene or, it's a, you know, it's quite a, you know, a suspenseful scene to help keep the scene alive in addition to those things that we're seeing you know the kind of the normal tropes so um that's what we wanted to do and and one of the things that uh i set out to do was that i never wanted to have just a, a just a voice a floating voice and we do have it in one scene um but um apart from that i wanted to have some kind of physical uh, iteration in the scene something physical that the audience can see whether it was a floating object or the coat or something and and that proved to be a bit of a rod for my own bat that was a bit hard that it the cheapest and easiest way to do it would just be have a voice but we wanted to do something a bit more visual in every scene and make it each scene different um so it's not something that we've seen before within that film so yeah that was the that was the sort of the general approach What's really interesting about Theory Invisible Man is that it does kind of harken back, I think, to like what the classic kind of Universal Monster movies did with the property as well. Um, it's a gothic piece. It's a period piece. Um, what's really, I think, impressive about the film is that I think these days, you know, filmmakers could tend to use the the property of Invisible Man and do, and do some exploitation with it. They could do stuff with violence or sex, etc. What you wanted to do with this film, I remember I remember seeing that behind the scenes kind of um, uh, documentary in regards to the movie. You were talking about how you wanted to make something that was kind of, you know, family friendly in a certain way, something that everyone can watch and not something that's kind of like just to want towards one audience, something that everyone could watch. Because once upon a time, even though horror movies were scary, it was something where everyone could watch it together, right? Um, and I think that's really kind of you know, was a an impressive kind of feat on your end. Was there any kind of pressure whatsoever to try to, you know, uh, do things with the movie that could perhaps maybe kind of push push the edges of violence or or, or sex? Because in the film there is certain things that talk about lust and also violence, but it's not something that where where it kind of like um, goes all out in that terrain as well. Is there any type of um, in, uh, pressure in, in regards to to going that way at all or was it always a key from everyone involved to make sure that we're staying in this one lane where it's a film that everyone can watch together from 10 year old up to uh, 60 yes that was our our remit from the outset really that i wanted to make it a family friendly thing and i think our kind of level for me funny enough i'm about to go on and do a ghost picture but our level for me was something like ghostbusters mm. where there's the horror or the scares but it is on it comes under that 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 line of family friendly that you know you kind of you might have the the 10 year old hiding behind the 
the the you know the the, the you know the sofa or whatever and that's fine they're not looking at any sort of gratuitous violence there was one scene that we shot which is still in the in the film which was when the invisible man slices off the police officer's head with an axe and oh, you we don't did see shoot, it but we don't see it and we yeah. did have a shot of the officer losing his head which was quite i thought it was quite fun and hmm. um it was very quickly cut um and then you know we decided to play it on the day i actually shot a reverse of of Vario on on reacting and i thought well just in case we decide to to trim it down in the edit where we've got her reaction so we ended up playing it on that but a lot of the sort of the darkness of the film or the horror would come through suggestion and light and tone rather than gore and i think um i'm not a big fan of horror from that point of view i prefer kind of um yeah kind of where it's a little bit more in 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 inferred rather than sort of splashing blood and things like that um so i wanted it to be the darkness of the film and kind of you know that would be our foundation of of the horror quote unquote so yeah i didn't really want to go too far in that direction it was always kind of fairly family friendly from the beginning so the Invisible Man is the draw of the film, but Mahari Calvi is the star of the movie. She's pretty much, in, sure. I think she's pretty much in almost every scene in the film, like from what I can yeah. remember. I only watched it like the film like a few days ago, and I remember she was in it. Um, she plays um, Adeline, um, Adeline in the movie, um, this widow who is kind of like um, almost poor. I mean, we're talking about like late 19th century at the time, women couldn't get work. And what's really frustrating for, for her character is that she's incredibly intelligent. She's incredibly capable, but she's no kind of like um, place for her in society. So oddly enough, she's kind of like almost like an invisible woman. So she's like almost like, you know, the invisible man herself in a certain context. Um, Absolutely. Meheri, you know, in, in the in, from what I understand, she was cast pretty early on during production. What is she? Was she on board the film before you came on, or was it? Did, yeah. did she come on afterwards? No, she was on board. It was actually Vari that recommended me to the to the execs to say, look, you know, you should look at Paul to to make this because I had had I'd worked with Vari on a science fiction series that we had done a few years before, so she knew that I had like a background in VFX and and things like that. So maybe I could pull her off uh you know had a good chance of hopefully pull, pulling this off with the amount of the effects that might be required um so they put me forward and we kind of went from there really so it was right in my wheelhouse really yeah i want to talk about the this really kind of morally complex relationship between adeline and griffin uh and griffin being the invisible man in the movie um it's really interesting in that they are like old mates but it's kind of like almost kind of like i wouldn't say a romantic story in there but it's clear that he kind of pines for her in a certain way um, and what's interesting on her part is that going back to the whole notion of the invisible woman, she sees for him a way to kind of like get out of her situation. But at the same time, she has to deal with the complexities of him being who he is. And I don't want to give away too much about what he does in the movie and, and, and such, but, you know, things, you know, do get dark in, in regards to his character. Um, forming that kind of like complex relationship between the two characters, is that something that was already framed uh, within the screenplay when you got it, get it? Or is that something you work with Mahari um, on the film and also with Griffin and kind of like you work on it as you're approaching uh, the film, uh, uh, filming-wise in the movie? Yes, it was a big... Uh, element of the film actually that when I got we did do a little bit of a tweak on the script um it to allow for that because it was a really fine line between if um if she doesn't know what's going on 
and what Riffin's up to that makes the character a bit stupid. If she does know, then she's complicit in what he does. So it was a real kind of minefield in a way, just to navigate that complex character of like, she suspects something's not quite right. What's the, where's this money come from or whatever? And then she sort of, there's an element, I think, where towards the end she does suspect but she's by that point she's so swept up in the emotion of it and the fact that she might have a uh, a way out for her troubles but is she willing to turn a blind eye and and then by the end of the movie she's obviously said Do you know what no i'm gonna have to go to the police because this has gone too far so that was a a graph that was we plotted a lot of that character in the script and by working with vari about each scene that leads up to that which helps, you know, leads up to that finale and her ultimate decision to go to the police that had to be plotted quite intricately because if you misstep in either way, then she's either stupid or complicit and you can't have that for either, you know, for either of them, really. The character has to navigate a way through the middle of that, those two kind of, um, you know, football goalposts kind of thing. She has to go through the middle because if she goes to either side, then the audience, well, we lose the audience. Um, so that was a real tough, I appreciate you noticing that because that was a real thing for us to navigate through. Um, and then even in the edit, we would make a, the odd little tweak. Maybe there's a look that she gives that we'll either keep in because she's suspicious or we take out because she's suspicious too early. Um, so it was a real kind of juggling act um, right through to the end of production. And it comes to another thing I think in the movie as well is that she much like the character Griffin, who's played by Mike Beckenham in the movie, is is a man of science. She's very much a woman of science. The only difference is, is that she didn't have an avenue to follow through with her studies, right? That's all. She didn't. She couldn't get a position or, or anything else like that. Um, sure. But she, I think, to me, she's very much seduced by the power that Griffin is wielding. Not as much as as he is as a as a tool to like to embark and kind of like these sinister schemes, but more like you know. This is a monumental achievement that's right in front of her as well, and I think that's a, that's almost like something that happens with her. And, and I think what's happening with Griffin in, in in the relationship between the two, it comes back to the whole notion of um, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and I yeah. think that's what's really happening with him. What's what I uh, what I always struggle with though with with that quote and that the philosophy behind that is when someone has that kind of power or creates that kind of power and, and he has is able to use it. Um, is what happens afterwards with their personality? Is this something that's already inherent with them, and then and this power is able to kind of unleash it, or does the power kind of change something within within them? What do you think it is with Griffin? Do you think with Griffin that him becoming what he does, he is he does become this kind of like this monster? Do you think that he was always that monster within? He always had, you know, I know he's definitely always had that ego. I'm definitely he's definitely always had you know, these kind of like almost like a rebel streak to him, but him becoming the invisible man gives him um, or what he thinks anyway, permission to do some really um, violent and gnarly things with ambitions of, of even bigger things before him. I'm just really curious as if to whether you and Griffin had any it talks about whether is this who he is or um, is this who he always was from within or did the power kind of like mess him up in some way psychologically and spiritually as well? I think that's really interesting because there's a I, I I would draw a parallel to that with um money and even validation on social media, mm. <laughs> where I think we are what we are and fame or money or whatever comes down the road at us just amplifies what we've got. 
inside. So if you are a good person, you're going to do good things with that money. If you have, you know, if you secretly seek attention and validation, and then something like social media comes along, then you use that as your vehicle to tick that box in your head. Um, and it's the same with Griffin, I think, which is where, you know, Vari's character as Adeline, she wants to do good with the, this this tool. And Griffin wants to do, you know, bad things to help tick that box. You know, it's the same as like, you know, like anything, any tool, you could have a knife used to cut bread or you have it to kill someone. It's like, what do you choose to use the tool for? And Griffin is obviously looking to do something more sinister than what Vari's character would. And and so I think, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting kind of, um, you know, thing to, to explore really in the movie. And I think it's, you know, what, you know, we all ask, what would we do with that power if we had it to go invisible? Um, and, you know, if your brain goes to sort of darker, um, sort of, uh, yeah, kind of illegal things, then that's sort of is sort of a big uh, magnifying glass on what you, you know, what you're about, really. So, yeah, it's quite an interesting proposal that hopefully, you know, we might have answered it in the picture, really. Well, there's a great um, quote in the movie when um, Adeline kind of like pleads to Griffin's um, uh, sense of morality, and he says, uh, "I'm now above man's more petty morality," which I thought was a really, really cool line in the movie. Um, so I want to talk about now the invisible part of the Invisible Man in regards to the, the visual effects. As I said in my intro, we are dealing with a, like a, a lower budget kind of movie, but it's one that's actually impressively made in regards to um, the world building that you put to, in the screen. And I wanted to delve into that world with you. I know that with the uh, Horizon uh, TV show and movie that you delved into that stuff before in regards to kind of like, um, uh, you know, the whole alien invasion aspect and all that stuff. But now you're dealing with a totally different thing here where you have a character that you want on the screen. He needs to carry a weight, but you can't see him. And I think that's mm. a really interesting kind of uh, kind of concept to, to having to deal with. The Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is brought to you by Tee Public. Tee Public is the world's largest marketplace for independent creators to sell their work on the highest quality merchandise. With over 1.2 million designs, Public is sure to have something you love. The Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast is brought to you by Amazon. The world's leading online store, Amazon is your first stop to buy a wide range of products at competitive prices with fast delivery times. Amazon is also a world-class entertainment hub that includes Prime Video, Audible, Twitch, Amazon Music, and more. Sign up with Amazon today and experience the best in online shopping and entertainment. Please support Matt's movie reviews on Patreon. Get access to exclusive content, request movie reviews and top 10 lists, and help support my work. Please click on the Patreon link in the description below. So when you first approach with this and you you do have the history with um, visual effects, have you ever dealt with that kind of visual effects before where you have to deal with things that aren't there? Because when people think visual effects, they think of things that uh, is created so we can see it, but this time we can't see it. And that's a whole point, right? We, we, we need to feel the presence, but we can't see the presence. I know you said that before you wanted to make sure that there was always something there to evoke that weight and everything else, but it's still a tricky endeavor to do because, yeah, you know, you know ever since the times of like, you know, the, the classic 1930s stuff, you know, technology has changed, but the goal has always been the same and approaching that goal. How did, how did you want to approach that? And, and what, what did you find 
that maybe you weren't expecting in regards to the good and the bad of dealing with visual effects like that? Well, um, first of all, I think at the top of this, I got to give a shout out to my VFX artist, Alta Brett, who did all of the 406 visual effects shots that are in the movie. And it took us best part of 10 months. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's also, uh, I would say half of the VFX in the picture are, you don't know that they're there, whether it's a sky replacement or we painted something out or, you know, we've added something that is, you think should be there, but we didn't really notice it was missing or whatever. So there's a lot of those invisible effects in the film. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, what do we do? We did we did a range of things from we had a mocap suit a bit like Gollum kind of you know where it was I actually performed that where we were running around jumping over sofas and stuff which is actually the bar in the tavern or whatever just to get the animation of the character and when the snow lands on him in the in the in the alleyway and things like that we had cloth simulation where he sits on the bed and that was I mean, a lot of the effects we did, I think there was probably 60, 70% of them we had done before in one way or another. And then there was this 30% that we hadn't touched, like motion capture and um, a cloth simulation, which is something which was new to us. So what we did for that, for example, was you would have a shot of the bed and um we took some high resolution images of the bedspread for the design and then in the computer we created a cloth with that uh image of the bedspread on it and then you have a man who uh an outline like a mannequin who would sit on that on that cloth and then make an indent in it um so then you have to light the cloth the same way that it is in the bedroom then you render out that image of the cloth but don't render out the man so you're just having the imprint um and animate that man as he moves across the bed which he's never seen obviously it's the imprint in the bed and then we render that out and comp that into the shot of the bed etc so it's each of those each of these little sequences might be a new effect that we've never done before and there might be six or seven shots within that one scene and then we'd move on to another scene where the invisible man gets soup thrown over him and it's like okay so that's a motion capture but then we're into particle simulation where you have a liquid which is then being thrown onto the mannequin and how does the liquid hit and roll down the mannequin's face how does it how is it lit um and then how is it animated etc so there was a lot of interesting uh shots to do there's a lot of banging our heads against the wall when we had to think of a different way to solve the problem um which is a lot of the time where it took so long to do um so yeah it was it was a really you know uh interesting a sharp learning curve um and like it should be and i think we wanted to make something that was ambitious i mean if you're going to do something that's you can do and it's all reasonable then you, it's not really ambitious you have to aim higher and i've always i've kind of always liked that mentality of and i've fallen on my face a few times where you've tried to reach for something you haven't quite managed it and you've fallen um i'd much prefer to do that than to go do you know what i'm gonna you know pull back inside my safety zone and just this is comfortable here and i'm gonna shoot two people talking in a coffee shop type movie and uh, uh, you know it's quite challenging to go okay we're gonna do this dialogue sequence but one of them is invisible so we just see the coat or the cloth or whatever that's that's doing it and and i like those types i like that creative work i like being challenged i think it's important though that filmmakers do try to 
to do that because if they didn't, the movies that we were inspired by wouldn't be wouldn't you know wouldn't have the effect on us that we did. You know, also filmmaker from back all the way to twenties and thirties and the the guys in the sixties and seventies with practical effects. You know, if they didn't try to do reach beyond their grasp, then we will never probably even see the advances in the filmmaking that we get now. And yourself as a filmmaker and as a historian who knows all about the the history of filmmaking, I'm sure, especially in genre films, that's a very important thing that people need to realize. You need to take risks um, on in your films to try to reach the the visual, uh, try to get stuff out of your head onto the screen. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I think. I'm also a, a believer in like about how you should personally kind of advance. And it's like, you know, we've just finished another film now on based on Frankenstein, you know, and if we, 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 a lot of the stuff we learn on Invisible Man, you take into Frankenstein and then you look back at the effects in Invisible Man, you go, oh, I'll do that differently now, you know, or that, or we didn't quite manage that, you know, the, the lighting on that was too soft so it doesn't look like it sits quite within the frame well enough and it's like you're never going to be completely happy you know and it's like i've even seen movies that i love and you know some of the vfx are like amazing and seamless and others you just kind of cringe at and you go hang on that budget was 160 million and there mm. was five vfx houses that were involved doing all of those shots and at some point you get to that point where that the effect shot 482 version six needs to be delivered and it's five o'clock on the friday and there's no more time and the artist needs another five hours on it and you have to say no the line's been drawn that that shot's going in the movie and the audience would look at it and go oh that v you know that that vfx the, the cg was rubbish and it's like well the artist probably agrees with you but but they were asked to do loads of shots in a small amount of time and they weren't quite happy with it but that's the business that's how it works um so you know you just have to you just you you go to you can, I've heard the expression recently you go to war with the army that you have mm. and I think we had that we had eighteen days and you know a quarter of a million and that was it and, and what can we do with that time and money uh, we've got one artist working on the VFX let's go and mm. you're not gonna you're gonna drop some of the balls you are but it's you know it's it's just about the process and and coming out the other end with hopefully something that you have proud of really and kudos to to you and your team for achieving what you have done with the the time frame and the money spent because trust me as someone who just watched the flash a couple of days ago there was a plenty of people in that FX team that had the deadline that didn't make it right so when i was watching that film so and <laughs> yeah. uh maybe when you see you'll probably know what i'm what i'm talking about sure. but i mean i just just get off the back of that really when i was thinking about effects that we which you won't notice there's stuff that we had we shot a scene the very first shot of adeline silhouetted in a window and we're on a wide shot and we push in behind her that's her introduction and there's a chess set that's on the table and we shot it because the art department had a chess set that they they brought and, and we didn't realize actually that um, production had a deal with a, a, a chess company to um, have a period chess set in the picture, which they wanted in. So then me and Al got the message, you need to swap out the chess set hmm. with the new one, which, and we've shot it and it was a gorgeous shot, but then we've got this chess set that needs to be replaced. So nine months after we filmed the shot of Vari by the window, we're filming a separate chess set in Al's front room, matching the light, matching the angle. And we're trying to comp that into the shot. And then you realize that 
the chess set is a little bit smaller than the one in the frame so you have to replace the entire tabletop then the, the where the chess pieces are in front of a, a, a chair in the room the whole chair the back of the chair needs to be replaced and the camera's moving so there's three shots in that sequence of a chess set and ho hopefully the audience will go there's a chess set on the table but they don't know that's been comped in from nine months later when we filmed it in the the effects artist front room so those those kind of invisible shots that you kind of you know hopefully the audience don't notice but that's where a lot of the work goes on these sorts of things as well what about the scenes where you have um dialogue between um adeline and griffin where griffin's not there when you're shooting those scenes with um uh, with Mahari and she's talking to someone and that's a whole point she's dialoguing with someone and a lot of times it is a wide shot and you notice two people in the room but you can't see the other person of course um, how do those scenes work because is it a thing where someone's in a mocap suit green screen is it a thing and also in that context is Griffin there behind the camera talking uh, have did Mahari and Griffin even meet that hall during a production save for you know maybe the last scenes I'm really curious about that Sure. Well, um, we had Mike Beckingham played Griffin um, in when the scenes where he was in the movie and his voice. And then we had a Griffin stand in for the rest of the, the shoot, which was an actor called Joe, Joe Trigger, who's a lovely chap. And he did all of the scenes in a green screen suit in the coat or the jacket or the house coat, or whatever he was wearing. So Vari, a lot of the time, would play off him. So she would get the lines off Joe. And it was a bit of a thankless role for Joe, really, because... He had to learn the entire dialogue, the entire scene, and he's not going to be heard, not going to be seen. But he did a cracking job. Um, so Vary a lot of the time would be acting against Joe. And then sometimes she would have to play the scene against nothing. So we would block it out with Joe. Joe would then be off camera delivering the lines and Vary would have a you know, a point uh, a point of the back wall where she would look at or she would go right and playing it to the corner of the bookshelf and I would look down at the chess set or whatever and she knows roughly where that is going to go. Um, and then we would just comp in, you know, the the the, the visible man or whatever. So, you know, for Vari to remember all those lines and play where she's looking and what's happening and and things was was you know a big credit to her really because it's it's quite awkward you know you're not the a lot of the time you are feeding off the other actor in the scene looking at their eyes because that's the actor's tool and if you take that away you're not giving the other actor anything to react to really so joe did a cracking job and so did Vari really so it was a mixture between green screen not being there you know voice off camera and depending on what the scene was I don't know about you, and, and I say this to people all the time. See, I love genre films and whether of whatever, you know, uh, budget, shape, whatever. Um, and I always find that when it comes to kind of like award season or that, that genre films really do get like a, a really a, the shaft a lot of times. And what really bothers me sometimes is when it comes to people who have to work on with green screen stuff like actors, um, whether it be the big budget stuff or the small budget stuff, they really don't get the credit they deserve because a lot of action is reaction. Um, you know, you said before, no one to look in the eye, um, you know, you're trading dialogue, the, the feeling, even like the, you know, maybe from a spiritual, physical context, it's not nothing's happening there, right? But they have to use their imaginations and use their skill as an actor. So that's what they went to school for, all those exercises near yours coming to the fore. And they have to use that, that to go back, think about all those fundamentals, use it in this context and do a great job at it. And I don't know, I just think that, there should be more recognition of that type of acting in those type of films because it kind of bums me out that even to this day right now, 
um, that so many people in the industry have worked in that situation, so many actors as well, that if there isn't enough kind of like push to try to get some of that stuff out there. Anyway, that's just my little rant about that. No, I completely, I completely 100% agree with you. And I think what it is, there's an ignorance in the business and in, in the public, I suppose, where commercial or genre equals bad or mm. equals poor quality. Like there's some kind of linear line between good at one end and commercial slash genre at the other. And it's mm. like, you can't have both in the same way you can have uh, a, you know, a, a drama film with actor heavyweights that is it's poorly structured, you know, badly, you know, directed and it's boring, or you could have something at the other end that's highly commercial and, you know, look at something like I personally loved Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's a big throwback and stuff. But I mean, you know, that's not going to win Best Picture because it should have. It should have done, but it's not. And it, you know, and you find it with a lot of the technical, you know, a lot of the big genre movies, they get might, they might get costume, they might get VFX, they might get cinematography, but they won't get Best Picture necessarily mm. or Best Director. Um, and you're right. If you think about the physicality that an actor has to go through, in those types of films and just you know they, they forget as well like how piecemeal those things are made you know yeah. because you know if you did something off the top of my head you know kind of like a big disaster picture like san andreas or or something like that you know you might shoot four or five shots a day and you, you know that particular actor has to be in that you know fearful scared kind of frame of mind for the whole day and just jump into that you know couple of minutes and then jump back out of it out again so it can be even harder and same with directing if you think about when you watch something that's been really well directed like a big action film when you're judging you know you're juggling you know five cameras a big freeway and street you know cars flipping over or you know knowing how to break something like that down you know even looking at some of the really good marvel films you know like you know the last spider-man film just like the just all end game just kind of saying where do you start with a finale like that i know everyone criticizes the fact that studio and it's green screen but each of those shots still needs to be visualized. They still need to go, how what's gonna cut to that, to that, you know, we need his reaction, but that's gonna be CG. Then we cut to a live action studio shot of him picking up the sword. Then we cut to that, then we have that. And that all has to be sort of put together. It's a big military operation. Yeah. So, to, 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 as a director to have all that in their head and then the DP trying to light stuff on the stage that actually what's causing that light is a cg kind of uh, object that hasn't been put in yet um and it doesn't get the recognition it deserves at all um, it doesn't, so, no. um it's it's a shame but you know that's you know hopefully you get the box office but not the awards yeah well you know i always say um that if film genre was a currency you know the high profile drama is um is just worth just as much as like the um the high spectacle uh you know blockbuster thing or the low budget whatever it all comes down to the filmmaker's imagination and the work of the cast and the crew putting it all together um and making it work and for everyone out there listening uh you would definitely get your money's worth when it comes to fear the of the invisible man um out now on dvd and on demand in u.s markets and for what i understand um it's coming out poor in the uk next week is that right yeah, Monday the 19th uh, on, on DVD and video on demand. Yeah, so Apple TV, uh, Microsoft, uh, Amazon. Yeah. And You're I right. really recommend people um, do check out Fear the Invisible Man and watch it because we need to have 
Um, more, you know, a lot of people when we talk about kind of like um, visual effects movies, it's not just the, the big budget kind of thing. The visual, the, what made visual effects movies what they are are those smaller movies. The smaller movies is the kind of like the framework and the the grounding for these other bigger films to kind of like to flourish and stand upon. And I think it's really important that people watch these films and uh, either rent them or buy them, um, watch them, and and then encourage other people to do the same. And I can't wait to see. What you do with um Frankenstein Legacy as well. I know it's going to be the next big uh, big thing coming out for you. And from after that, are you working on a, a western as well? Is that right? Or... Yeah. So yeah, Frankenstein will be out. Frankenstein Legacy will be out next year. Um, it's almost like we've got their own dark universe going on. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, but then after that, I've got a supernatural western, um, kind of in the same kind of vein of of kind of family friendly, true grit meets Ghostbusters type vibe. Um, so really looking forward to doing that. We're kind of uh, just beginning to think about casting. We've got the location down. Um, so yeah, it's actually the location is is over in, in southern Spain where they the town that they built for a few dollars more, the Clint Eastwood picture. So oh. we're, you know, we've been over there. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. It's 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 like time travel. You're back in the Wild West. So we can't wait to start work on that. And then I'm also we've got a script arrived yesterday for a, hopefully a contemporary Christmas film that we're going to do in a, in a year or two's time, which is like a Love Actually meets Ghost. So all of the projects have sort of a heavy visual effects component to. Them, but that just happens to be chance really but it's it's all about the you know the fun stories that we hopefully get to tell so again everyone out there fear the invisible man watch it dvd and on demand now in the us the uk uh, next week um really recommend people check this film out and make sure that you support independent filmmakers like paul and paul i thank you so very much for your time today congrats with the movie uh best of luck with frankenstein's um, release next year and the other work as well and when those films come out i'd love to talk to you again man it's been a pleasure Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Matt. It's been a blast.